BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, I believe America is simultaneously a riotous comedy and a heartbreaking tragedy, writes Wajahat Ali in his new memoir, Go Back to Where You Came From, where Ali uses his personal story and a lot of tongue-in-cheek humor to show the absurdity and the pain of being an American when his fellow citizens question his right to be here. Ali, a playwright, lawyer, and commentator, joins us to talk about growing up in California and how writing saved him through some of the hardest moments of his life. Forum is next. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You may know Wajahat Ali for his commentary on MSNBC or CNN, or for his play, The Domestic Crusaders, or maybe even his national plea for liver donors to help his then two-year-old daughter survive stage four liver cancer. But before Ali was a dad and a social and political commentator, he was a shy, husky jeans-wearing son of Pakistani immigrants growing up in Fremont, California, and learning the contradictions of being a brown Muslim American. His new memoir is titled, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. Wajahat Ali, thanks so much for coming on Forum. Mina, thanks so much. It's so nice to talk to you again. Great to talk to you too. And when I saw the title of your book, I was like, okay, great. I'm going to have to keep saying this xenophobic slur on the radio whenever I say your book title. Thanks a lot, Watch. Really appreciate it. These are the gifts, the gifts that I keep giving to KQED and its listeners. Yes. But, you know, of course, seeing the title so much, having to say it, it really does take the sting out of it, I guess. And, and that is really in part about like the whole point, the book is revealing kind of the slur and all of its absurdity um, mm. and the absurdity of the unspoken rules really of, of being American in America. Cause there really are a lot of rules, sort of conditions that are placed on it. Yeah. The absurdity and stupidity of racism, right? Racism is vicious, but it's also so dumb. Right? <laughs> like oh, you go back to your country. I was born and raised here. Do you want me to go back to Fremont, California? Like, shut up, go F a goat. I'm like, why a goat? Why only a goat? Why are you so obsessed with goats? 
Like Sanjay Gupta, just shut your mouth. Sanjay Gupta, what? He's on TV. I'm with Jhatali, right? It's so dumb, but it's it's so painful. And there's that cognitive dissonance, right, Uh, of being a person of color, oftentimes in this country, and loving a country that doesn't always love you back, right? How do you love an America that doesn't see you as American, or if it sees you as American, Mina, it puts a a, a, asterisk. You're you're it's conditional. You are us until you're them. And overnight, this country can turn on you on a dime and it tells you to go back and it holds your moderation and patriotism as suspect and your loyalty as suspect. And you're asked to condemn violent acts done by violent people you've never met because all of you guys are the same and you all look alike anyway. (laughs) Right. There's so much that comes with it. And also just listening to you now, you know, sharing some of the things that that people have said to you, attacked you with, or sent you hate mail about, and hearing the way that you respond really is also the way that you open the book. Can you talk about your decision to start there? Yeah, so I wanted to have some fun with it. So the book literally starts with uh, me receiving uh, unsolicited unsolicited comments. It's fan mail, I think you would say, Mina. It's about five pieces of hate mail I got. Uh, First one was, go back to where you came from. And, you know, go F a goat and camel, you terrorist. Lovely. Just lovely emails I get. And I and I, I give a response. And the response that I give is, uh, as you can tell, uh, a pointed response, but with some humor. Because I think humor, if used wisely and intentionally, it can booby trap uh, the hate, right? You can subvert it and you can you can dismantle your opponents. It also allows us a release, literally a catharsis mm. to exhale. And it allows endorphins to be released where an an audience member or a listener who is otherwise hostile to new ideas. Uh, It makes them more, if you will, uh, permeable, uh, open to it. And so I thought, you know, it would be a great slap in the face, a punch in the gut with, like you said, you hate saying the words, go back to where you come from. It's so painful. But then if you then put a mirror next to that with some humor through absurdity, it also makes you laugh at it. And that kind of reveals the dichotomy of the pain and joy, the sadness and the laughter of being the other in America. And I thought that would be a great way just to hit you straight right out of the gates. Go back to where you came from. Well, I have a response to that. And let me respond in my way. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's also one of those things where it takes kind of a lifetime in a way to realize, or maybe it doesn't, but in my case, I feel like in terms of trying to think of and accept that humor and pain and even coming back with a really good comeback takes a really long, (laughs) took a really long time for me. Um, But when I was reading your book, I realized it also wasn't necessarily automatic for you either growing up in Fremont. Like you had to deal with a lot of going through the the painful process of learning all of these painful contradictions um, that is being a a non-white American. And can you just first talk a little bit about growing up in Fremont in the 80s, because you say that it's a place that you love, like you will defend it to the death. So what is it about Fremont that that is something that for you, you know, you, you've got to rep Fremont wherever you go? 
So yeah, I, I compared it to a first crush. Uh, you love it and you defend it, even though it broke your heart. And, and Fremont, no, known as Fremontistan, uh, is like you know that sleepy town where like everyone forgets. It's like in between San Jose and San Francisco, right? It's like where apparently like Asian and brown folks go and like live, you know, like Silicon Valley folks live. But I grew up in the '80s when um, a lot of those folks didn't get that Silicon Valley money, right? Where we the, the Jeffersons had not moved up yet, and it's a kind of a this really nice suburban multicultural playground, very diverse. Um, where my three generations of Pakistani Muslim immigrant family lived in the same old big triangle house. And when they dropped me off at Child's Hideaway Preschool, it was literally called Child's Hideaway. Uh, my parents thought it'd be hilarious not to teach their child English because who needs English in America? And they named me Wajahat to blend. And so I was the brown <laughs> Muslim kid in 1985 or 84 dropped off at Child's Hideaway Preschool who only knew three phrases of English, shut up, idiot and oh pasgetio and you you find your place in america oftentimes in the streets and in school you find like where you are and that's where i first realized oh i'm not the protagonist of the american narrative no one else speaks urdu no one else has turmeric stains no one else is wearing husky pants because i was also the fat kid and this was the 80s mina where there was no dove soap commercials about body positivity there was no lizzo it was like dodgeball was hell for us fat kids and so it was very you know, like, like it was one of those places where, yes, you had the pain of being bullied and being the other, but I was also in the Bay Area and there were Muslims and Pakistanis. And, you know, my carpool going to Bellarmine uh, uh, High School was like a Jew, me, a Hindu and a son of African immigrants, right? It's like the multicultural coalition of the willing, the United Colors of Benetton. And it gives you kind of a snapshot into, you know, the type of America that we could be, but it also gives you the snapshot into the model minority myth into the class warfare, into gentrification. There's a beauty there, but there's also an ugliness in the Bay Area, I think, as well. Mm. Can you tell the story of having a crush on blonde Jennifer, who was destined oh, to be yes. with with someone that you said, let's just call him Chad? <laughs> <laughs> so I was I, I was an early start. Uh, I was five years old and I saw Jennifer from the monkey bars uh, and her golden curls were bouncing, you know, and, and up and down. I thought they were like lifted by the angels. And I'm like, Jennifer and Jennifer was my first crush. And I was a shy, awkward, brown Muslim kid who was an ESL. Awesome. English, mm-hmm. a second language. Mm-hmm. And I thought, of course, Jennifer would be mine. But it was destined because apparently the 80s were a John Hughes plot that uh, Jennifer would be with Chad, who was like molded from like Aryan like myth. It was like Valhalla came and said, here, we'll give you Chad. And I remember one day uh, Chad and his friends uh, took me out to the field because when you're growing up, right, brown, Asian, black, you know, for those who think we're trying to replace you. We're not trying to replace you. We just want to get invited to the party. We just want to eat something called meatloaf. That's all I wanted. We just want Jennifer and the cute girls to look at us, and we want Chad and Travis to be friends with us. That's it. So Chad invited me to the field with his friends, and I thought, yay, I'm with the cool kids. But then Chad instructed the Mexican kid to punch me in the gut. Why? I don't know. And so the Mexican kind of looked at me. I talked about it in the book. He goes, sorry, man, I got to do this to earn my stripes. And he punched me in the gut. And that was the, probably my punishment for dreaming that I could ever be with a Jennifer. Yeah. And you also described that moment as a perfect microcosm of the American dream, the good minority earning his rank by beating up the bad 
minority. Talk about mm. what you meant by that. Yeah, because in America, right, it's all conditional. Uh, uh, you run towards whiteness, even though you will never be white. And that was kind of the implicit unconscious narrative of so many black, uh, brown and black, I think, immigrants who came here after 1965 and Asian immigrants that they came here and they're like, hmm, who's the winner? Who gets everything? Who's on top? Who's the protagonist? White folks, who does everyone really seem to hate? Black and brown folks, where am I going to run towards? Black and brown folks or white folks? I will run towards the warm embrace of whiteness. And even though I won't become white, I will be asymptotic to it, right? I will live barely outside. Uh, even though I, I will never be accepted, but maybe, just maybe, I'll come close to its warm glow. And in America, right, people forget that not everyone was considered white. The Irish were not considered white. The Italians were not considered white. Benjamin Franklin hated the Germans. But the way to make it in America is that that one group that used to get beat up, it then turns around and beats up the other group. That's the price of admission. So Germans were hated until they were finally considered white. And the price of admission was they had to turn and beat up the Irish. The Irish were not considered white, but then they had to turn around and beat up the Italians and the Eastern European Jews. And now many of those groups who are quote unquote American, the real Americans forget their history and they're telling the rest of us invaders to go back. That's how it's done in America. That's how you earn your stripes. And I do think you sum up, you know, the the pull, the immigrant pull toward whiteness so well. And it's something that was really personal to you because when you we look back on our families and the things that they wanted us to achieve and, and the things that they told us about how to, you, you know, make our way through the world really was so tied to this proximity to whiteness. Yeah, it's because whiteness is centered and no one even says it, but there's synonyms like Mitch McConnell, right? African-Americans are warring at the same rates as Americans. It's beautiful. He just admits it, right? Here's, here's some other words that do heavy lifting for white. Average American, Main Street, mainstream, blue collar, patriot. And so the rest of us are othered and our parents said to us without telling us, be white, you'll be right, and you'll be safe, but never be black or brown. We're talking with Wajahat Ali, whose new memoir is titled, Go Back to Where You Came From. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What do you want to ask Wajahat Ali? What parts of... Ali's story resonate with you. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Stay with us for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Wajahat Ali, who is a columnist for The Daily Beast, co-host of the Democracy-ish podcast, also a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times. You've probably also seen him on MSNBC and CNN. And his new memoir is titled Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. And if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. Reach us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And Kai tweets, I always suggest folks like myself who are occasionally complimented on our English return the compliment. It's the polite thing to do. Um, talk a little bit about the moderate Muslim myth. Like the model minority myth, there's this moderate Muslim myth. What is it? We are unicorns. There's very few of us. We're an endangered species, uh, apparently, who have come from this place called the Muslim world, which uh, apparently exists in Agrabah, a fantasy place where uh, apparently the few of us who exist hang out with Elvis and Tupac. Um, and we have, you know, moderate chai tea, which is TT. And apparently we're the good Muslims, right? We're the safe Muslims. We're the Muslims who help national security. We're the Muslims who spend 24-7 our time fighting ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab and bad hummus. Uh, we're, the, we're the friendly Muslim, the, the Muslims that you can feel comfortable inviting to your home. Uh, we're the good Muslims who drink alcohol and we're the good Muslims who eat pork. We're moderate and we're safe and we're shiny, but there are just few of us. And how come we can't get the rest of the Muslims in the Muslim world to condemn <laughs> terrorism? And if we did that, mm. the world would be better. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, former President Bill Clinton's speech at the Democratic National Convention? This is in 2016. 2016, I was there. I was covering it for the Huffington Post and, you know, Bill Clinton had a 30-minute speech, I think, introducing, we're talking about Hillary Clinton, and he's spent one line talking about Muslims. And he said something like this, and it's a kind of a paraphrase, but if you're Muslim and you love America and you hate terror and you love freedom, stay here and help us fight for America. And I was like, well, there was like six ands there. What? There were so many conditions. Wait, can we rewind? If you're Muslim and you love, I have to love freedom and hate terror and like do all this stuff. What can I just be? Can I just watch Netflix? Can I eat Cheetos and watch Netflix? And that's what was so amazing. Now, this was Bill Clinton, Democratic president, who was telling Muslims that there was a conditionality to our acceptance in Western American civilization. So we couldn't just be, but we had to love freedom and be patriots and fight against terror. And then and only then, whether he tried to imply it or not, we would be accepted as American. It was wild. <laughs> Can you talk about how the pressure of the moderate Muslim myth affected you during and after 9-11? And I guess first, actually, we should go back to that day because it was such mm. an incredibly life-changing and important day for you. So, so actually remind us where you were and what happened, you know, what you were doing when you learned what happened on 9-11. I was in my pajamas, a 20-year-old senior undeclared at UC Berkeley. My roommate, Essen, knocked on the door and said, you really got to come out and see this. And here we were, these brown 
dorks in our pajamas, you know, rubbing our eyes, seeing one of the towers on fire. And we were like, just like everyone else. Okay. Maybe the, 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 air, you know, the, the pilot had a seizure and that's, you know, and he just happened to like fly in. Maybe they're trying to go to LaGuardia. But then once we saw that second plane hit, we're like, Oh my God, like everyone else, we realized this was orchestrated. And then you saw the, the Chiron and it said Al Qaeda or, is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Muslim extremists are suspects. And right then and there, you do the Muslim uh, prayer, which is the minority prayer, which every minority does anytime there's a ca- catastrophic event, which is let it be a white dude. Not because we hate white people. It's because we know that when there is a white terrorist suspect or a white killer or a white shooter, all of white America is not blamed. All of white America is not asked to condemn the violent actions of the white terrorists they've never met. The microscope is not on the white person. There's no mass surveillance, right? There's no mosque crawlers and community rakers and, and the NYPD yeah. spending all their money and time, you know, literally Literally surveilling innocent Muslim Americans simply for being Muslim, and so right, right. The whole, the, the whole identity, it. the race, the faith, the ethnicity is not indicted. Everything is held suspect. And so overnight, what happened was Islam. This thing became the enemy, axis of evil, us versus them. And I was a twenty-year-old trying to figure out what the hell to do with my life. Uh, you know, undeclared major. And I ended up joining the Muslim Student Association and they elected me to the board. And I remember at that time, I'm like, F my life. I should have joined the Indian Student Association had I known the 9-11 would have happened because then overnight I became an accidental activist. It was a baptism by fire. It was like what I call the X-Men danger room simulation where like all the horrible like entities come at you. And right there and then, I realized that I had to become a walking Wikipedia and this, this Muslim fireman, this ambassador for 1.7 billion people in 1400 years of Islamic civilization. And I had to be perfect because if I ever made a mistake, not only would I be blamed by a nameless judge, jury, and executioner, yeah. but everything called Islam and those who look Muslim, people forget this, Mina. The, this is how stupid racism is. The first hate crime after 9-11 was against Balbir Singh, a right. sick man, a right. gas station owner in Arizona. The two towers were brought down by 19 foreign hijackers, 15 Saudi Arabians, two from um, UAE, one from Qatar, one from Libya, from Lebanon. And here I'm in Berkeley, a son of Pakistani Muslim immigrants. And I started getting those hate mails then that go back to where you came from. Why did you hate America? Why did you attack us? And I'm like, wow, just like that overnight, the country turned on me. Yeah. Um, well, we've got calls and, and comments coming in that I want to get to. And, and let me Please. go to Domingo in Torrance. Hi, Domingo. Join us. Well, yes. Hi. Uh, good morning. Uh, first of all, thank you for having this guest on, um, on the show. I found you very funny, and I have very similar experience to what you had. I'm from South America, came to the U.S. when I was 10, didn't speak any English, went through high school. I used to find uh, stickers on my locker saying, welcome to California, now go home, right? Mm. So mm. I experienced some of that racism as well. But what I wanted to say also is that um, I learned that, you know, for whatever racist person I found, I found 20 people that were Caucasians, Americans that were not racist. And whatever uh, hatred I felt, uh, I've also felt the love, right? So, so I learned at least to, 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 to treat people as individuals. I know that you know, we have a country of 400 million people. Some of them are going to be racist because they're ignorant. Maybe they don't know us. Uh, but a lot of them uh, are just going to be really good people, right, that, that will help and that will see you as a human, not as other, right? But I also wanted to say that, that, that I think that by, by focusing so much on, 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 on whiteness and, 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 you know, on that, I think it turns 
Caucasian people that have been here for since the Mayflower off a little bit. And it makes them feel like they're attacked a little bit. And uh, perhaps I wanted to know, is there any other way to talk about it? Maybe we talk about individual racism versus uh, racial racism, right? Coming Demi- from, uh, I, so that's all. Well, Domingo, thanks for sharing your personal experience. Curious how you'd answer Domingo's question there, Watch. It's a very good question. Look, people are people. No one has horns on their head. Well, I hide my horns, but the rest of you don't have horns on your head. You know, no one has tails and sulfurs. Good, good people are capable of ugliness and really terrible people are, are capable of doing good things. That's important. And when we talk about whiteness and white supremacy, it's important that we're not talking about white people, right? There are white people against whiteness and there are people of color who support whiteness. I know I just said a lot. What we're talking about is an ideology, a paradigm, a structure that elevates one above the other, that elevates one race, one complexion, one person that is seen as white, as the true American. And it comes at the expense of everyone else, right? White is a construct in America. There was no such construct. There was no such label until like 70 years, uh, you know, uh, later, like in near the, the, the start of the 18th century. And white was specifically designed to designate those people in power, those landowners, those who are on top and differentiate them against those who are black and indigenous. And there's no way to have these tough conversations without naming it, Mina. You have to name the problem. You have to confront it and you have to talk about it. What Domingo was saying is the following, and this is my response to him. No one likes talking about racism in America. I've never met a racist in America. No one has a racist bone in their body. No one has a racist heart. Have you noticed that even white supremacists and members of the KKK, when you ask them, are you racist? No, I'm not. I'm just a defender of white civilization and the white race. And so anytime you mention this in America, in any context, the country loses its damn mind. I'll give you one example. Colin Kaepernick peacefully and quietly knelt during the national anthem and the country lost its mind. And so each and every single time that the rest of us have tried to stretch and expand America to accommodate the rest of us and talk about racism, we're told to shut up, be quiet, be grateful. There's or we're no told way to that have this conversation. There's no or, way to have the conversation without stepping on toes. Or we're told that we're racist for bringing up race, that we're <laughs> yeah. the real racists. You're racist for talking about why, why are you a race hustler sucking the teat of racism to, to fuel and milk your career? And I'm like, listen, people of color would love to never talk about race or racism in this country. We'd love to talk about our Netflix queue and the new season of Ozark and, and you know, like our mother's food. But if we don't talk about it, we can't dismantle it. We can't excise it. And my, my, I say this in the book, the dark heart of, race, of America is white supremacy. Unless you acknowledge it, confront it, take a scalpel and excise it, take it out from its root, Mina, this country will never succeed. It will never succeed. It's impossible. Because guess what? None of us are going back. None of us are going back. So are you either going to stretch and expand this country or are you going to restrict it? And there are forces right now, Mina, who are trying to restrict it, literally erasing us and banning books as we speak. Let me go to caller BC in San Francisco. Hi, BC. Hi, how's it going? Great. What's on your mind? Um, well, I'm deeply inspired by um, the comment that came before me. And, you know, I, I think I'm always thinking about that. But what struck me uh, to call today was just wondering, and I think that could also relate to um, what the caller ahead of me just mentioned, which is, does it ever feel like home, right? So, like, after years of being here and and 
creating space. Like I, I'm from Nigeria and I've lived here for over 10 years in San Francisco and, you know, it's kind of become my home, but there's, you know, there's constant tensions of belonging and these conversations that often have you questioning if you mm. really belong. Mm. And so I wanted to ask, um, uh, to, you know, yeah. Does it ever feel like home? Uh, BC, thanks for sharing that. I mean, isn't that powerful, right? Because no, to you it feels like home, but then you had the president, the president of the United States of America, not Biden, but the other guy, Trump, who literally told four congresswomen of color, congresswomen, public servants, all citizens, three of them who were born here, by the way, and Ilan Omar came here as a refugee, as a young girl, to go back to your country and clean it up before you come back here and stop complaining. And we are told to go back. Go back where? This is home. I was born and raised here, right? And right then you know that the, these same forces, it's been the same forces, Mina. And I agree with the first uh, caller, Domingo. There are many good people, great people. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the structure, this paradigm, this ideology, this narrative, and these forces that have been in America from the beginning that used to tell the Irish and the Italians, go back. The thing is that the Irish and the Italians and many Eastern European Jews were able to absorb into this thing called whiteness. Black folks who've been here for 400 years, Chinese folks who built the railroads, Japanese who were citizens who were interned, they were citizens. Mexicans, the indigenous, are still not seen as American. This is still not their home, according to the master narrative, because they will never be accepted into whiteness, which is why you got to name it define it, understand it, and dismantle it so that this is a home for all of us. And I don't care if you agree with me or disagree with me politically or culturally, I'll never tell you to go back to where you came from because I know you belong here. You're my neighbor. Well, Kara writes, I think an appropriate response to go back to where you came from is the womb. And then Chad writes, <laughs> I'm 79 and a black American. There was an old riff from my childhood. If you're black, step back. If you're brown, right. stick around. If you're white, you're all right. My family never believed it, but understood the politics of the racial hierarchy in the USA. Can I ask you about writing? Because you talk about it as both your superpower and also something that really saved you, that really helped you find your voice. And mm -hmm. especially in the context, this happened to you, of course, in the fifth grade when you had this really great teacher who encouraged you to read an awesome story that you had written. Um, as like a 10 year old, but then you also talk about one of your Berkeley professors encouraging you to write uh, shortly after 9-11. Talk about the effect of that. Sliding door moments in life, right? The first one very quickly, I was a really, and this is important for people to listen, right? Like, like, oh, you know, people often say this, Mina, I can't be like Mina and Waj. I can't speak. I can't write. I'm shy. You know, I, I don't write for the New York Times or the Daily Beast or go on CNN or publish a book. I, who am I? I'm nobody. We're, we're all nobodies. Some of my favorite people are nobodies. <laughs> you know, I was a shy, sick, fat kid who almost got kicked out of fifth grade. I couldn't even talk. I, if you told me to get in front of a room and talk I, and, or the option of punching myself in the face, I would punch myself in the face and in the gut and then trip myself. That's how much I avoided, avoided it. But my teacher in fifth grade, Mrs. Peterson, gave us an assignment to write a one-page story. 
I wrote a 10 page story and it was my rendition of Robin Hood at the time. And she gave me an A plus 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 and said I had to get up in front of that homeroom and read the class, recite the story. And I'm like, please, Miss Peterson, I I'm fat. I don't want to. She goes, shut up, fatty. Get up and do it. I'm embellishing for fun. And so I read this. I read the story and the same bullies who mocked me, they were wrapped with attention. They laughed at all the right places and they applauded. Then she said, I have to go recite the story in front of the talent show that was coming up, the fifth graders, sixth graders, and seventh graders, the elder classmen. And the same thing happened. And right then I knew, I discovered something, I had it. I'm like, I might have the ability to tell a story. But it didn't just overnight, I became a storyteller. Like you mentioned earlier, you start off the program, right? It's a muscle that you have to build. It takes time. But over time, I had encouragement, a mentor, and, and, and you know people who really believed in me, teachers. And I was 20 years old, 9-11 happened. I became an accidental activist for three weeks. I was dealing with all this crap. And Ishmael Reed, my short story writer, writing professor, a titan of literature, a black man, told me, don't write a short story. Dialogue and characters are your strength. You should write a play as a black man I can tell you this country is going to go after you and haze your people for the next 10 years. It's going to be mm -hmm. bad. They've tried to erase us for 400 years, but we fought back through art and culture and storytelling. You should write a story. You know what? Write an ethnic story. All stories are ethnic. Write a play. You ever read Raising in the Sun, Death of a Salesman, A Long Day's Journey into Night? I'm like, yes. Write me something like that. I'm like, what? Yeah. Write me 20 pages of a play about it. What are you again? I'm like, undeclared terrified no like muslim pakistan yeah write me an american family from a muslim pakistani standpoint give me 20 pages or or you'll fail and by the way remember everyone this was a short story writing class he goes okay i'll see you in two months and that became the genesis of the domestic crusaders my first play and without that play maybe i wouldn't be sitting here in new york in the studio where i just recorded a podcast where i just premiered my book talking to you mina on kqed <laughs> well, we're glad to have you on KQED with us. Um, Karen writes, racism is everywhere to the detriment of human beings. So my mother and her sisters were teenagers in a town in Poland where her Jewish family lived for generations. Mm -hmm. They were shouted at by others to go back to Palestine. One of my young aunts used to yell back, you go to Palestine. I live here. <laughs> um, good for good for that aunt. Well done. I know. I know. And I know that you've also written about the anti-Semitism that is just continuing to rear its ugly head in, in the U.S. Um, for the Daily Beast recently as well. It's, it's kind of incredible. The ebbs and flows um, and the different manifestations of racism and xenophobia in this country. And we're talking about that, but also talking about lots of other things with Wajahat Ali. His memoir is titled, Go Back to Where You Came From. As I mentioned, Ali is a columnist for The Daily Beast and also a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times, also co-host of the Democracy-ish podcast. We'll have more with him and with you after the break. You can call us 866-733-6786 if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or post your comments on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Wajahat Ali about his new memoir titled Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. And if you want to hear more of Wajahat Ali, he'll be in conversation with Dave Eggers on Tuesday, February 1st at 730 on City Arts and Lectures. It's a virtual event uh, that you can stream and tickets can be purchased at cityarts.net the website. And uh, calls are coming in, more comments coming in. Let me go next to David in Sunnyvale. Hi, David. Uh, hi, Mina. Um, nice to speak with you. I'm, I'm very much enjoying the conversation. Um, I, I wanted to share a brief anecdote. My uh, And I'm third generation Italian, so I didn't have to go through the assimilation myself, but I, I, I know my family did. And uh, um, the anecdote that I, I did want to share had to do with, with uh, a couple of my children. Um, we, I, I wanted to go to see Mount Rushmore, and the only way to get there is to make it the destination because you just don't run into it on any, any other pathway. And so we, uh, we were, two of our children were not seated with us, and we were waiting uh, in the, the airport lobby uh, after we got off the plane for them to come out. And what they said was was really i i was just stunned you know I, I grew up in wisconsin so you know the the demographics that were around me in in uh, rapid city were familiar and and not remarkable to me but when they got off the airplane they both said they said mom dad now we know where all the white people are <laughs> and i i took it as a a sign that they had just so normalized in their very integrated uh, school mm. that uh, that it was it, it took them by surprise and I was like that is I just was so encouraged mm. and to me it's this it, these generations it takes time for these things to, to take place but I was just very proud as a <laughs> as a parent and as a just a person I guess I would say <laughs> that it was it, it was remarkable to them that that was quite different from where mm. they they were and they, you know that, that that's that was just a story I wanted to share and and a, a, a moment of hope I hope for for how to think about how we can get better about these things anyway I, I don't yeah. know how that resonates with uh, with you mr. Ali but I I, I, I was just very encouraged by uh, uh, the hope in in how you you uh, you talk about these things uh, David thanks and and watch what David is saying also reminds me of a point you you had made in your book about how things get better. And one of the things is having a lot more stories like this to help diversify and, and help people recognize the full spectrum of experience so that they can recognize people for the, the fullness of who they are. Yeah, if you aren't writing your story in America, your story is always being written for you by others, right? And if you aren't telling your story, your story is always being told to you by others. And storytelling, you know, people mock it and ridicule it, especially Asian parents, right? Doctor, engineer, businessman. 
failure. You can be a storyteller and a writer. But it's stories. Is, is, there's a reason why there are forces right now excising stories. There's a reason why there are forces right now removing books in Texas and Florida. That's the power of stories. That's the power of narratives. And, you know, human beings are unique storytelling animals. That's how we understand our place in the world. It's how we understand everything, the universe. It's how we pass down our morals, our values. And imagine if you're excised from the story. And growing up, for many of us, we were not the protagonists. We were either the villains, the sidekicks, or we were invisible. And the question I asked in the book, and I'll ask you, those who are listening, is it better to be invisible or the villain? Because at least the villain gets a nice, tasty role, right? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, okay, so if America is going to excise me, fine, I'll be your villain. And for many of us, we don't want to replace you. We want to be co-protagonists of this narrative. But by simply telling our stories, Mina, we are the villains and the bad guys. We are the, wait for it, invaders. You know, what's interesting, though, is I remember I interviewed you. I think it was maybe 2011, or it was something related to, to 9-11, I just think to so. ask you about about what that time was like. And what I realized now in reading your book is that I had no idea what you were going through mm. in 2010, 2011, around the time that, that I reached out to you. You really didn't uh, tell your story or that part of your life at that time because you were so deep in some of the hardest moments of your life um, do you want to talk a little bit about, about that sure. stage? It's in the book. Uh, so about seven months after 9-11, I now had turned 21. I still senior at UC Berkeley. I had applied to law school. I had gotten in, I think, to Hastings and Davis, and I had to make my decision. You know, a very lucky, privileged kid. And I was at Shalimar in the Tenderloin. Ain't nothing tender in the Tenderloin, to quote <laughs> Chappelle. And eating chicken borti, I got a call from my aunt who said that your parents uh, got arrested earlier today. You're the only child. I think you should come home. You have two grandmothers who are terrified. And you, I don't think your parents have called you yet. And I'm like, what? And so my parents... Uh, got swept up at, at that time, the largest anti-piracy ring called Operation Cyberstorm. Robert Mueller, who was the head of the FBI, came to San Jose and did like a, a press conference. And my parents were a part of like two dozen people who were swept up. But the irony here is that there's so much bad luck that happened. My parents didn't ha- did not have a single anti-piracy charge. They got actually swept up in a completely unrelated case to deal with dealing with Microsoft. But it, Microsoft and FBI teamed together. That was one connection. And number two, the people who were allegedly doing this piracy software, uh, this counterfeiting ring, we're in the same office complex, but it didn't matter. All that matters is the headline. And once a headline comes out, Mina, the whole story, the entire complexity gets flattened. Now, just like you're an invader, my parents were criminal masterminds. And Microsoft alleged that they were sitting on $100 million. So people thought that I was sitting on $100 million in the sense that the damages for $100 million, right? They sued them for damages for $100 million. So everyone thought, ah, Wajahat Ali has $100 million. I was broke. Uh, I had to leave school. I had to take care of the family business. I had to get a lawyer. Both my parents were in jail. And that case lasted for 10 years. And that when, when you and I talked, my parents had just finally lost their appeal because they decided to appeal that case. Because like, why should we say we're guilty when we're not? They fought it. They lost it on Ninth Circuit appeal. They, and my father and mother initially had to spend one year in jail because it took me a year to raise the bail because everyone turned on us after 9-11. Right. They got out. They rebuilt themselves. They appealed the case. It lasted eight years. And then I got the call. I'm sorry, your dad lost the appeal right then. And then he got arrested. The judge gave my mom six months to self-report. 
we lost everything again while I was succeeding, you know, while, while you and I were talking, everyone's yes. like, well, Jatali made it, though. he's a playwright, his plays right. in New York, right. he published the play, he graduated from law school, he's writing for The Guardian. Yeah. What was also happening was I had lost everything again. I was living in one room with my mom on the in the same bed because we became homeless. I was broke. And then I had to drive my mother to Santa Rita to uh, the jail and restart my life. You also soon after had like a near-death experience. I mean, you'd had a lot actually growing up as a kid, but but you you had that heart arrhythmia, right? Yeah. So a couple months after this, after I you know I, I, I drove my mom to FCI Dublin, which is next to the Santa Rita Penitentiary, where my mother my mother and father then served the rest of their sentence, three and a half years, a total of five-year sentence. Can you believe that? And a couple months after that, right after I turned thirty-one. Uh, I went and did a loser uh, workout at 24-hour fitness because I had 20 minutes. And I got on the uh, elliptical and my heart rate jumped up and I passed out. And when I woke up, my heart rate was still at 220. And it stayed at 20, 220. And the resting heart rate, it's from 60 to 100. And if you're resting and chilling and your heart rate's at 220, bad things happen to your body. And so I had supraventricular tachycardia, which led to congestive heart failure, which led to me coughing up a fluid, which led to me almost dying, which led to them defibrillating me, cardioverting me three times. And I was almost a gunner, Mina, at the Washington Hospital in Fremont, California. And I went through the whole near-death experience. And, you know, I was fine with my exit, as I mentioned in the book, but I had one regret. <laughs> And the one regret was I'm dying alone. Not necessarily alone in the sense I don't have friends and family, but I didn't invest in a relationship. And that was my one regret. I'm like, I should have invested in the family. <laughs> but right then, right then, my heart rate stabilized. And I thought, wow, that's a sign from God. <laughs> and, uh, and you do have a beautiful relationship and a beautiful family. Uh, let me read just a couple of listener comments really quick. This listener tweets, listening to you, I legit spat out my coffee laughing at your Jennifer Chad story. <laughs> Thank you for bringing some levity to our stories. Michael writes, after so much of this stuff, don't we recognize racism for what it is? Stupidity. Those who would tell people to go back to wherever are just dumb, revealing much more about themselves than they could ever say about the objects of their hypocrisy. And this listener writes, the country did not change overnight. After 9-11, it expressed itself. It expressed the side of itself that mm. has always existed. There's a line in your book where you say, kind of, um, as we're talking about your near-death experience and, and thinking about all the experiences that add so much strain and stress to our lives, that surviving is an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. And of course, these days when I think about that, I do think about your daughter, um, who recently recovered from stage four liver cancer, um, which of course, I mean, nothing can compare to a child uh, being in that place. And, and you tell the story of the barter prayer. Um, yeah. 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 Take me for yeah, them. My, yeah. My, my daughter, seven, eight months before the pandemic, my, who was about, who's two about to turn three, got diagnosed with stage four liver cancer where the liver, uh, the cancer spread all over her liver. And we found out that she would have to get a full liver transplant and everything that could go wrong with this poor girl went wrong to the point where we didn't think she'd survive uh, the initial diagnosis. And then 
everything that could go wrong when it came to donors went wrong, right? And I was able to use my storytelling platform to spread out the word and the story about Nuseba and 500 donors stepped up. It was the first time ever that the Georgetown transplant team said that the, um, the, the supply uh, outweighed the demand. They were shocked. But even though 500 people, mostly anonymous folks, this, this was so amazing. People who didn't even know me, they just decided to help this little girl they had heard about, Nuseba, right? Isn't that amazing? We all have the capacity for good. Sometimes some people can do good. I wrote that in my book, and that includes us. Even then, Mina, what they said was, we've never seen this before. 500 people have showed up, and no liver works, right? There's not a perfect fit. Yeah. And like, and, and to the point where the people, the team at Georgetown says, we're so obsessed with saving this girl. We dream about her. She haunts our nights. We have to find a, a donor. And at the last second, we got an anonymous donor to step up who just happened to be a Pakistani Muslim guy who didn't know me, who lives like 20 minutes away. And yeah. his wife saw me at a speech I gave at North Carolina a couple of years ago, started following me. He, Sean Zahir. His, the husband who gave the liver doesn't even have Twitter. And he, she just started like reading off of Twitter and he picked up the, the took the phone, scrolled through it and said, Oh, I'm O blood type. Oh, I'll, I, I'm Pakistani. Oh, I'll go try out. And he went through a battery of tests. He was anonymous, gave the liver anonymously. And I found out from a mutual friend randomly he goes, I think Sean's giving, Sean's in surgery right now. He's giving his liver to your daughter. I'm like, Sean? He goes, oh, crap. I wasn't supposed to say that. And and then I met his wife and met his family at the hospital. Uh, so look at that. Uh, because of one man giving his liver, uh, my daughter is now cancer-free, age five, beautiful hair. And she told me, she commanded me that I could not come back from New York without the Encanto dress from the Disney store. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and she reminded me six times. It's like basically she's like, you know, either you come home with the encounter dress or don't come home at all. And look at that. So, so that's a story, right, where there's pain and there's misery. And when people say, how, how can you be hopeful? And I say, well, my daughter's alive. How can yeah. I not be hopeful? Yeah. And I love the detail that even people would share with you that, like, I abhor your politics, but I want to contribute my liver if I can, too. <laughs> yeah, the, literally one guy's like, I hate everything you tweet. I'm like, everything? He goes, everything. But I'm praying for your daughter. <laughs> We're talking with Wajahat Ali, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I want to read this comment from Alfie because I think you have probably gotten this question a lot. Alfie writes, as someone who often denounces bigotry, why does he think it's okay to post the kinds of tweets he does about white people? Does he think that anti-white bigotry doesn't count? I'm genuinely curious to know. What would you say to Alfie? Oh, Alfie, that's, you know, I get that sometimes. Listen, I, I, I don't... <laughs> uh, Anti-white bigotry, racism exists. Bigotry exists. When I criticize quote-unquote, white people. I'm talking about whiteness. I'm talking about white supremacy. I'm talking about master narratives. I'm talking about those in power, right? And there is a power differential. There is a power differential that you have to recognize, right? And so it's literally the rest of us on the margins, you know, oftentimes just poking harmlessly at the bully bear that often stomps us down, right? And so if you are that offended by some of the jokes that me and, and, and other people of color do or some of the comments, imagine how it is for the rest of us. Just imagine how it is for the rest of us who have to go through this systemic racism, who are told to go back, who are asked to apologize for violent actions done by violent people we've never met, who are surveilled, who get paid less money, who are told to silence ourselves. We can never be angry. Even the right to anger, Angie, and Mina 
is privileged in this country. Mina cannot be angry on this show. If Mina's angry, why is she an angry Asian woman? She should know her place. She's so reactionary. But if a white man's angry, he's telling it like it is. He's politically incorrect. He's shooting from the hip. And so when we make these comments, I want it very, if you're asking this question sincerely, we do not hate white people. We do not white people to go anywhere. We want to be invited to the party. We just want an invite to the barbecue. We don't want to replace you. That's all. We want to taste the glory that is meatloaf. I was fascinated by meatloaf. I would have loved if Chad invited me to his house to eat meatloaf. And if I could wear my shoes in the home, Mina, I'm going to stereotype, but I think you could feel me on this. I'm like, they wear shoes in their home. That's amazing. And so that's what for people that really listening, it's not, we don't hate white people. We love white people. We, we, we sometimes want to be white. That's how much we love whiteness. Uh, we just want to share. We just want to share in the glory. That's all. <laughs> Let me see if I can quickly squeeze Andre in. Andre from East Palo Alto. Really fast. What's up? Hey, how are you doing? Great. Yeah, I want to mention uh, the, the talk. You said you grew up in, um, in Fremont, like in the uh, mid 80s. It's um, experience growing up. But if you would have went over the bridge, Dunbar, East Palo Alto, a lot of things that you you speak on, you know, like, for example, you was a chubby kid and you had like um, some issues. Black folks from real black communities, they can care less about that. They get a lot of confidence. They wear their weight or any kind of uh, deformity with honor. You know, we're not, we're not offended by um, um, white people telling us this or that. Because we've been, um, you know, ever since our induction here, we've been mm. getting it. You know, they, we're the worst, we're the worst of, of, of it all. Let, you know, someone else speak the narrative. We're rapists, we're thieves, we're drug dealers, we're drug addicts, all that. And black people from real black communities, when I say real black communities, like Hunters Point, Oakland, uh, parts of Richmond, um, we can give a flying F about that. You don't like us? Here, here's a couple more reasons for you not to like us. You tell us to well, go back to Africa, take your ass back to Europe. You know, um, you know, you can't. Uh, uh, yeah, we don't. We're not. We're, we're not trying to get invited to, to the barbecue or the party. You know? uh, Andre, I like. Um, I, I just like hearing all the different. I, I almost feel like I've gotten so much advice, Watch in terms of just uh, from the very beginning of this conversation, I was saying it took me a while to figure out like how to let these things roll off um, or have a good comeback. And I feel like um, listeners but Andre has a good but also, Andre, and yes, please, please. And two, two, two quick points to Andre. The last point of if you don't want me at your barbecue, then F you. Fine. I'll have my own barbecue. That type of like flex is a new flex for many people, right? It is. Like we don't need your affirmation. We don't need your approval. You don't want us? That's fine. We're going to invite Andre, and we're going to have a badass potluck and barbecue, right? Number yeah. one. And number two, for many of us, especially after 9-11 and especially after Trump, they're like, wow, maybe we'll never be part of whiteness. Oh, look. Look who's been going through it forever. Black people, brown people, Chinese, Japanese, intersectionality, the multicultural coalition of the willing. Huh. Maybe it's time to stop chasing whiteness and start chasing the real American dream. All of Waj, us. thank you for coming on. Really great to have you. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.